Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. John Wise is the co-founder and COO of Love Pop. John grew up in the mountains of South Carolina, spending as much time outdoors and on the water as possible. He studied naval architecture and marine engineering at the Webb Institute, where he met his future business partner and best friend, Wambi Rose. After graduating from Webb in 2009, John joined Metal Shark Boats in Generate, Louisiana, where he designed and engineered and project-managed high-speed aluminum boat platforms, including the U.S. Coast Guard RBS, which can still be seen in Boston Harbor today. After two years, John was promoted to engineering manager, leading the company-wide engineering team. In 2013, John left Metal Shark Boats to pursue his MBA from Harvard Business School, where he reunited with his best friend, Wambi. And on a business school trip to Vietnam, John and Wambi discovered incredible ancient art of kirigami and were inspired. The duo took their engineering background and combined the paper art form with the slice form structure used in ship design and developed slice gami that they've trademarked. And Love Pop was born out of that. Love Pop is on a mission to create one billion magical moments with an imagination meets engineering approach to designing unforgettable pop-up gift cards. And uh, as COO, John is dedicated to making Love Pop the best place in the world to work for hungry, creative problem solvers. I am actually a former customer of Love Pop. And I, um, when I saw the designs again today, getting ready for this show, I'm going to get ready to get some more on my desk to uh, send out to people because I love the designs. In 2017, John was honored with the Forbes 30 Under 30 Award for Arts and Style. He lives in Somerville, Massachusetts with his family and to this day enjoys spending time outdoors and on the water wherever possible. John, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Thank you so much. So excited to be here. Yeah, I was reading that bio yesterday when I was just getting ready for our, um, to our talk today. And, and that's kind of not where I expected you to come from. Like I wouldn't have expected the manufacturing engineering of boats and high-end kind of design stuff to coming into gift cards. Like, It's a very um, non-intuitive at the outset. And I guess I don't know that I thought this is where I would end up either, to be completely transparent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you start pulling back the layers, there are a lot of really interesting reasons that it really does make sense, um, yeah. which have been really cool. So tell us, tell us a little bit more about Love Pop in layman's terms so people can see it. And then we'll link to it in the show notes because they have to go to your website and, and um, take a look at the actual products and grab some because they're amazing. And everyone that I've given these to in the past loves the designs. They're, there's something super clean about them. But can you just tell us a little bit more about them? For sure. So we make laser cut 3D pop-up greeting cards. Um, they are incredibly intricate. They're incredibly engineered. And they, you know, they fold flat so they look like a normal greeting card but when you open it a full kind of 3d sculpture comes to life um, from the card and we generally don't greet the card they don't come with messages and so we have turned back to put the onus on you kind of as the giver to put your sentiment and your message into it and kind of the combination of the surprise and delight of the 3d pop-up the content that you can choose. So we have over 400 designs and mm. when you, you know, if your mom is a gardener and you give her that garden card or your dad, you know, love the willow tree and you give him that willow tree. 
um, the content like builds that personal relationship and then you write your sentiment. And so we just do the job of a greeting card really effectively. Um, and it did take this combination of kind of art and engineering to pull it together. And I think we've all seen kind of the the poorly done, cheesy kind of Hallmark versions of these cards that, you know, it's like, it's not really a pop-up. You open it up and some little, you know, rabbit pops up at you and says, boo. And it's like, well, that was tacky. Yours is art. Like yours is literally, it's it's beautiful. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. It really is. I think we we strive for that. We strive for it to be truly creative truly um artful yeah I, I also love that you said that you um you leave the leave them blank inside and that's when where you're meant to write your message it was funny years ago when we were building 1-800-GOT-JUNK we had these we called them happy holidays and it was like reindeer pulling a junk truck down the, the snowy <laughs> road and and on the inside it was blank and it was meant to write your greeting and one of our franchisees called us up and he was really mad that there was not, no message on the inside of the cards. And we're like, dude, that's where you're supposed to be a nice human being and write a note to someone. <laughs> like, what the fuck? That's how you build your relationships. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. All right, so you guys started this company off. How many years ago did you start now? We were five years. We just passed our five-year anniversary um, in April this year. Awesome. So again, I was telling someone the other day, most companies never make it through their first year, let alone survive their first five. So tell us about the company. What, what kind of size are you now? How many employees? Where are you based, et cetera? Yeah. So we are in Boston, Massachusetts um, with our headquarters. We also have a team in Vietnam and then we have retail operations across Boston, New York, and Florida. We have um, a little less than a hundred people in our office here in Boston. Um, and we have almost 800 worldwide between our office, uh, retail, and manufacturing workshop up. And, and where are your cards sold? Are they just direct to consumer? Are they off Amazon? Are they in retail stores? Gift? Where, where would we find these? Yep. Uh, our main channel is direct to consumer online. And that is the place where you're going to get our full selection and kind of the full ability to incorporate all of our services. We do different customizations for the cards. We allow you to upload photos and integrate that into the card. Um, and also direct send it kind of in today's digital mm. world. You'd think you wouldn't have to go to the post office and find the stamp and then go back to the post office and go through all of the rigmarole. So we can, we'll do all of that for you. Um, but most of our sales are online. We are in third party, kind of your local boutique gift shop. And yeah. we have, if you're in uh, metropolitan areas, kind of on the East coast, we have some of our own retail locations um, and kind of major transit areas in Boston, New York, and Florida. That's cool. I'm starting to see, I saw a Warby Parker store open up the other day in Vancouver, which I thought was interesting that I have these pure play retailers are opening up some retail. Is it, are you doing the retail locations as a way to build your brand and, and kind of show people the product or is it purely a good channel that you can actually do enough revenue out of, or is it, is it more of a marketing play? It's actually both for us, which is really great. So we kind of evaluate it as a standalone business unit that is profitable and contributes, but it is, it's an amazing marketing channel as well, mm -hmm. because particularly with a physical product, it is tactile and um, we are in the business of creating magical moments and that is an experience. And so coming into our retail operation, you're able to see that. All right. And then um, last kind of question just about the product itself. Do you do corporate cards as well? Like do you do, and, and do you do custom cards for companies at all? We do. So we, this was in the last year we really launched um, kind of part of the company focused on how do we better serve corporate customers? We've always had people in companies buying our cards 
And we've started doing a bunch of different customizations more for the corporate clients. Um, for like a fully custom card, we do that. It's a fairly large kind of minimum order volume. But sure. we have a lot of options for doing smaller tier or little customizations within the card. That's cool. The interesting thing that I think we've also found that's very funny um, and maybe relevant to this audience is in the giving space now, people really prioritize thoughtful connection. Mm-hmm. And so customers... We, we have to convince business owners and marketers all the time, your customers really would prefer some beautiful art that you've sent to them with a meaningful message than a giant pop-up version of your logo. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like they, they actually don't want that on their desk as much as we all love your logo. So I, I wrote a note down to, to talk to you about this, but have you heard of a guy named John Rulin who owns a company called Giftology? Uh, I... Um, Familiar. Familiar. Okay. I'm, I'm going to introduce you when we get offline and I'll, I'll link John Rulin's um, giftology information on his book in the show notes, but that's exactly what he talks about. You know, he talks about how the, no one wants your, your cheesy company shirt with your logo on it. You know, you barely your employees want to wear it, but certainly your customers don't want to walk around with it. And they're, you know, your customer's spouse doesn't want to get some coffee cups with your logo on them in their home. So you're better off to give them something that is meaningful, that's theirs with no one's logo on it at all. Um, and, and that is kind of what you guys have taken to heart as well as that, that customization. The other thing that he says is to really not be so focused on the same moments that everyone else is. Like, don't do the Valentine's Day cards and the Christmas cards when everyone else is doing. Do the the card on, you know, March 13th, just because it's March 13th, like just send the cards out because I'm thinking about you or something happened that's more personal in your life. Uh, For sure. Yeah, yeah I think we, we find that and our customers find that. Absolutely. I also, um, we are also a very efficient way to do it um, compared to sending a box of pears that's going to cost you 50 to $60. Yeah, It's a much more affordable way to do something really, really different. Um, But you have to put in the work to think about what's the content you want to. That's cool. All right. So you guys had this idea five years ago, you saw this kind of origami or this type of art, I guess, kirigami over in, uh, in Vietnam. Is that where you saw it as well? Correct. Yep. And then then how did you, how did you then take that into an idea? Walk us through the initial stages of you and, uh, and what was your partner's name? Wambi. Wambi is my you and, you and Wambi. So how did you and Wambi then kind of come up with this idea and how did you, what was the genesis of it, turning it from the idea into a business? So we came across this art form and really immediately just fell in love with the art. We thought it was so cool. We're both engineers, like really through and through engineers. And so kind of the engineering nature of it was intriguing. Wambi's background, he is like a on the side artist he loves to create and so he was just like that's so neat um the we had also never seen it before and so there was a kind of just intrigue to it we bought some brought some back and we happened to be back on business school campus in valentine's day season and literally you would like pull it out of your backpack and somebody like oh can can i buy that wow Well, sure. Um, And so from the very beginning, we realized there was this really strong product market fit. Like when you surfaced it in the right context, anyone who was looking at it or within a group of five people, there was someone who's like, I will take that. That's cool. Um, The challenge has always been how do you reach a scalable audience, um, you know, in a, a economic model that really makes sense? And how do we do it in such a way that we tell our story? And how do we 
continue to um, expand the, the line of art to serve all the different jobs that our customers kind of need to do. So, so how did you do that? And, and did you, were you guys a product of any kind of a Kickstarter or, um, you know, any, any launch like that at all? We, in the beginning, we went through basically every incubator kick. We did a Kickstarter. We went through a lot of different incubation um, programs while in business school. We then did Techstars after business school. And then we were on the ultimate incubator of Shark Tank. Um, uh-huh which really helped us get our brand out into the world. Um, and so early in the business, because that really is to, to break through and to get enough people aware of what you're doing, uh, it was really important for us to leverage kind of every opportunity we possibly could to get more awareness. And how did it go on Shark Tank? And what was that experience like? Shark Tank was great. Really, really amazing experience. Obviously, very nerve-wracking. Um, how it is portrayed on film is basically exactly how it happens. They do a really, really good job of portraying the reality of the the context. You've never met the sharks before. Um, You walk into the room, they're looking at you, you kind of start and you're like, okay, I really hope this goes well because there's like 10 cameras looking at me um, and whatever I say is definitely going to make the air, whether it is good or bad. Right. Um, And so we did a lot of prep. Um, and kind of knew our financial model in and out and had a really great conversation actually, um, ended up as soon as you, you know, you're past the initial fright, um, you're then just talking about your business. And so for us actually came very naturally and we ended up getting a deal with Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful, um, who has been a really amazing partner even beyond, beyond Shark Tank. Interesting. That's great to know. I mean, he's a, another Canadian. I met Kevin 25 years ago or more. God, 1991. Met him in a bar in New York City when he was running Softkey like ages ago. The guy's been extraordinarily successful. So how, how has he helped you guys in your growth? And then um, I guess what was the launch stage? Was it just you and, and Wambi and bringing some cards in or did you hire a bunch of people? How did you start? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'll take Kevin first. Kevin has been a He's a really sharp business person um, in general, um, but he's also really media savvy. And so he's been really helpful as we've built more partnerships and gotten more media exposure kind of as we built the business. Um, in terms of how we started, we really, we saw an opportunity to sell, take an industry that hadn't changed in hundred years. I guess the last innovation in the greeting card industry was taking greeting cards out of drawers and putting them on the rack. And that rack is what's been the kind of bread and butter of the industry for the last 50 to hundred years. And we saw this opportunity to breathe new life into the product itself through a different economic model, which is selling direct to consumer online kind of um, through our own brand. And we, so that's kind of been the focus. And when we um, went on Techstars and we went on Shark Tank, the goal was how do we build this audience? Now, we also appreciated from the beginning that it is a tactical, tactile, not tactile, um, product. Yep. And so we also very early hired, well, we had one of our um, college friends who joined us and opened our first retail operation in South Station. And so he literally, for $2,000, built a kiosk in his parents' basement and then like shipped it in overnight and worked the first two months standing behind it every day. 
that was kind of our first um, permanent installation. And we're still in the exact same spot in South Station four years later now, um, which has been really, really amazing. It's, it's a new kiosk. We actually just renovated the kiosk, um, yeah. which it was due for that. Um, but so we kind of had a both retail and online presence from the very beginning. Um, in terms of growing the business, you just kind of do it one day at a time, one day at a time. And okay, so you said you tried to figure out the marketing model and how to tell the story. How, what have you guys stumbled through and what was working or what, what is working now? What have you thrown out that, that used to work and doesn't now? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most interesting challenges of growing a business, um, I guess it's growing a business in general. What you did yesterday doesn't necessarily, what got you here won't get you there. And yeah. so it's constantly this moving target of um, where are we allocating our marketing spend and what are the testing that we are doing to kind of help us get to that next scale. Um, and I think it's, it's, so it's challenging when you're growing a business. I think it's further challenging in our current digital kind of marketplace because the channels are so dynamic and what channels were working yesterday aren't working as effectively going forward. Um, How did you figure out your pricing model? How did you, how did you kind of walk us through those steps? I know there's a lot of people that listen to podcasts that I think one of the biggest problems with most companies is they don't actually understand their basic P and L and their job costs and profit, right? So how did you guys walk through that? Because it's got to be critical for your business. It's very interesting that you say that. So to be totally transparent, our pricing has been pretty much the same from like one month after we were selling them out of our backpacks. And it was kind of just like, wow, people are paying $13 is what our, our cards now are 13 to $15. Mm-hmm. And I think in the beginning they were like 10 to 13. We had some slightly simpler ones. Um, and that's kind of what people paid. And honestly, we didn't feel that good going any higher. And we knew that um, there would be some effect. And I think that is maybe the most interesting thing that we have kind of figured out around pricing is that you, particularly in consumer um, and in retail, sometimes where you see pricing changes is not intuitive in that you can increase price and not see your conversion rate um, change. But it's actually the people who are not buying that you need to be looking at more than the people you're buying and that right, there's still okay. a lot of opportunity either for repeat purchases from your core consumer or um, new consumers that you could be bringing in if you yeah. had a lower price. Um, the one thing that we do now that kind of was a evolution, a really important evolution for us is if you buy five cards, you get them for $10 each. And so we do kind of... Um, we don't generally like to discount and that's like not something that we yeah. uh, like to do, but uh, where there's a real honest mutual exchange of value, um, we think it makes total sense. And what's so, your, what's your average cost on getting these manufactured then? Getting we, these cards made. Um, so I'd rather not go into specifics on the margin. Okay. I, w- I was going to guess that you're like a buck to 10 bucks and I don't know if there's a, a guideline or, but you don't have to go there. It's okay. Um, that's okay. No, you don't have to do that. So, I mean, there has to be margin, right? Like if you're buying something and selling something, there has to be enough margin in there to be able to pay vendors and cover overhead and, you know, cover your marketing spend, et cetera. That's, I think that's where most companies go sideways. I'm like, okay, if you're going to sell muffins for $3 and the muffins cost you a dollar and you're making $2 per muffin, are you really going to sell 
you know, 500 muffins a day, like who the fuck's buying all these muffins? Like it's, I, so I do remember very, a very explicit conversation with one of my, um, business school professors when it was very early in the business and she was asking me, well, what are your goals? Why are you excited about it? And I was like, you know, I just feel like there's a really cool opportunity here and everyone's buying them. And, um, maybe I could pay off school, you know, build this business. Sure. So I can just pay off my student debts. And she's like, okay, well, let's do some quick math. Like, so you owe this much money in debt. You're selling cards at this much. You've got this much margin. How many cards do you need to sell to? And we're like, Oh, that's a, that's a lot of cards. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to do that out of my backpack. Um, so you clearly, you have, you figured out the manufacturing side, you figured out kind of the fulfillment side. Tell us about first off for you and Wambi. So divide and conquer what, um, what parts of the business does he run? What do you run? Yeah. So we use the visionary integrator model. So yeah. I actually run most of the business. Um, with the exception that Wambi runs the whole design team and he is both our CEO and our creative director. Okay. And so um, he is, he does all of our kind of um, investor relationships. He does our external facing PR and partnerships. He does all of our design and creative. And then I otherwise am in running and managing the business day to day, which includes everything from, our kind of marketing, working operations, our product technology teams and what software we're developing, our um, people finance. Okay. On the PR side, because you mentioned media coverage earlier and on, on the free public relations, I wrote a book recently called Free PR. What, um, what kind of press are you guys generating for yourselves and how do you go about that? Are you running it in-house? Are you using PR teams? What are you doing? Yep. So um, we generate a good bit of press around our story and kind of the, we have a great story. We're a very unique background that has been successful and have had a bunch of great partnerships to talk about, including Shark Tank. People love Shark Tank. as sure. a part of yep. um, We, so we've got a lot of, a good number of PR around our growth in general. Um, we also have a lot of product placement that we can get in. We can get in all the gift guides mm. um, because we're a great kind of product for that use case. Yep. We do, we do a combination. We do have a manager in-house who um, kind of manages all of our inbound and manages our agencies. And then we have two different agencies that have kind of different functions. One's going for, um, we call it kind of the halo or the hum, which are not giant hits, but like making sure we're constantly in little yeah. places. And then there's another one that are really going for the big hits. Um, the big hit. Okay. Today show leading into Mother's Day, those types of things. Awesome. Yeah, I get it. All right. So media coverage has been key for you, the divide and conquer. How about you and Wambi, um, you know, being best friends, I'm sure it hasn't always been easy. So how have you guys worked through any of the more stressful times that you've had? And can you walk us through one of those? Yeah, for sure. No, I think um, having Wambi as a partner has been one of the most valuable things that we have and one of the most rewarding things, but definitely five times more challenging than either of us appreciated. Mm. Um, that it was going to be. We really were best friends. We respected each other a lot. We knew we both were smart, capable people, but we never really worked together um, and never really worked together in the beginning of a business. The stakes are so high. You're sure. just like, um, you know, every decision feels like it's, it's such a gigantic decision. The 
we are now an amazing place, but it took kind of a long evolution of um, figuring out how to work better together. And I think it really does come from trust in that we thought we trusted each other, but until we were both wrong enough times and the other person was right, then we really started to appreciate where and how we should trust each other and how we should work together and how we should leverage each other's strengths. And I think over the course of our partnership, we kind of on paper look very similar, naval architects, background, grew up in the mountains, business school, but in actually how we operate every day, we're very, very different. And that has been an incredible asset um, for us managing the business. But it took a it took a while to actually figure out all of those pieces and how we're different and how we best manage them. Where where have you two continued to grow then in terms of your your leadership skills and then also just kind of the functional skills of running the business? Where have you continued to grow? Or I mean, how I think, have you to grow? Yeah, I think we continue to grow from the beginning, literally quarter over quarter. We look back and we're like, oh wow, we have we have learned a lot this quarter. Um, I think it's evolved from tactical like we grew a lot to learn this industry and how to make the most of our skills in this industry and how to do things like accounting that i didn't know how to do for a while and then it evolved into how do we build sustainable business and how are we actually thinking about processes and systems and now it is a lot about how are we building the team that is then doing all of these things and and gotten much better at um leading and running the team and it, 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 all of these things, there are components that come naturally, but there are also a lot of components that are real skills that you have to learn either from doing, from bouncing ideas off each other, or from working with mentors to help kind of fill in the gaps. Okay. So it sounds like a lot of yours has come from then the concrete experience and reflective observation, right? It's kind of doing it and then learning about it, debriefing afterwards. Tell us about the mentors. How have you learned from them? I think... Mentors have been really clutch for us um, and really important. From the very beginning, when we were in school, we kind of leveraged a network of communities and mentors, and we were in Techstars. It really taught us the value of finding people who were excited about what you're doing, were willing to share their time, and had kind of functional expertise in mm. exactly what you're doing or in adjacent in adjacencies. And it can be helpful both on you know what are the decisions I'm making day to day in the business for the strategy of the business as well as how am I managing and aligning the team? Um, how are kind of all the peripheral parts of building the business, um, of building the business rather than just kind of selling something. Um, I, we've, we, we have had a really strong set of mentors from the beginning. Um, and I guess it does also evolve because as you grow, you have different types of challenges. And so different people help at different phases. Sure. And it has been, incredibly important. And the reason that we've been able to get to where we are as quickly as we are is because we, I think, are smart at leveraging the right help at the right times. And are you guys a part of any mastermind groups? Or are you part of any groups like YPO or anything like that? We um, have been somewhat involved in YPO, but we're not directly. Um, I think the most of our immediate network is the kind of venture community Sure. And um, when we were in Techstars, there are a number of companies that we came through that built a really strong peer group. And now, right. again, in the school. Okay, makes sense. You mentioned uh, Traction, the visionary integrator, so EOS Traction. Is that, do you follow a lot of the systems from Traction or just the, the visionary integrator component of it? We follow a lot of the systems from Traction. That was, I mean, talk about mentors. It was one of our very first advisors in school who was like, read this book, do what it says, 
it gives you the answers. <laughs> and we read the book, we did what it said, and we're like, oh my God, like I just went to two years of business school and this book, they didn't tell me any of this. And this book really did just kind of give me the answers on what I need to do to be managing the team effectively. Yeah, Gino, Gino Wickman did a really, really good job. I'll link it uh, in the show notes as well. Um, but he did a really, really good job with, with, I say, dumbing down the systems, but I mean that with a ton of respect. I think Vern Harnish with his book Scaling Up overcomplicated some of them a little bit, but they're really strong. Gino kind of dumbed it down and simplified it, which did an amazing job. And I think it's a, it's a great system that most of the companies in the kind of 10 to 100 employee range should really be running, starting with. And then, you know, you might need stuff that's a little more mature when you hit the 250 plus mark, but it's amazing. I agree with that. It's, it is my number one recommended book um, to early founders yeah. because it just gives, it's a playbook. It, you know, the, there are a lot of cool business books that give you interesting ways to think about problems, but this really does just tell you like, do this and it will work. It, you know, like, it gives you the worksheets and the system to follow. And if you do that, then you go to the next step and it's great. Exactly. Totally yeah. works. Yeah. Um, all right. So talk us through a little bit about doing work with, um, with groups in Vietnam. So you've got offices over there and employees over there culturally walk us through some of the differences, some of the difficulties, and also what are they doing well over there that we can kind of R and D, what can we rip off and duplicate? Sure. So, uh, all in all, it's been really amazing to do work with Vietnam. We, a little bit of our history is we started working with contract manufacturers there. Um, through that, I built a relationship with a designer on the ground who we eventually partnered with to open our current facility. So we started from zero. I convinced Wambi, I was like, okay, so there's this guy I met. He's really good. He's really smart. We just need to wire him $10,000. And I'm pretty sure <laughs> he's going to make a factory. It's going to be awesome. Um, and wow. at the time, it was like, that was a lot of, it was a lot of money. Um, and we did it and it was awesome. And it has been really, really good. And it's been a really critical part of our story that we have had kind of full integration from the beginning. Um, I think the challenges are language for sure. As with any, you know, working internationally at all, having, being able to communicate in the same language is so clutch. And so yeah. we actually have English teachers on staff now in our Vietnam operation. And most of our senior management team knows English. Um, distance. I you're think, not learning. You're not learning Vietnamese, though. So <laughs> it's not that clutch. Eh? I know some simple Vietnamese. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I do feel guilty about it. I do honestly wish that I knew much more. Um, I think when push comes to shove, there's a lot of prioritization you have to do as a leader, and that's one that's been tough. Well, and it's also it's easier for us to delegate the learning of a language to someone else, and and they're they're so more more motivated to do it. They need to. Uh, we don't need to. We can delegate that. So, how about how about culturally? Um, what do they do differently in terms of business in the day to day? Are they different in the way that they lead people or manage people, recruit people? Do they run meetings differently? Like, what do they do that's just different? I think the, um, it will, so in many ways it's similar in many ways it is much less different than you may think it would be. Um, and that I think was a learning too. And that like Vietnam, it feels very far away and it feels very different, but when you're there and you're working, it's really just not that different. There's people who come to work every day and they go home to their families at night and they do same kind of things that we do here. I think the, Places that um, I have really learned from Vietnam is in culture 
in that they, are, they do a really good job of actually just celebrating what they're doing every day. They are really a great, generally happy people, and they really emphasize building a strong community within the organization. Um, oh, cool. And they do it really organically, um, which has been really, really neat to see and be a part of. And I think that there's definitely things that they have done there that we have then brought back to here in the U.S., do they feel like do they feel like they're part of an American organization or do they feel like they're a partner with an American organization? Like, do they feel like they work for you or that they work with you or that it's the one same company? Uh, one in the same company is cool. really, really what we strive for and um, how we voice everything. And we generally our policies um, are not like 100% mirrored, but they're pretty close to mirrored. And we really do view it as one laptop, one organization um, that is working together towards a really common goal. And that's the other really cool thing is also when you're on the ground in Vietnam and um, talking to even the lowest level, you know, people on the ground there, the reason they're there is because they love the art that we're making and mm. they love the, the cards. And they're just like, right. it's so cool. It's so fun. Like, why would I not want to be here with these all day, every day? I love when a new design comes out and we see the new design like hitting the floor, which is so funny because that's exactly in the U S like when the designer oh, cool. the new design is like running around the office, everyone is like, wow, that's so cool. Um, it's really great. I think the, the thing that we have taught them a lot is in a lot of these like management structure, management entrepreneurial structures um, and how to kind of be more effective in your day to day kind of, uh, managerial um, kind of operation. I guess the other thing is in Asia, a lot of organizations are very hierarchical. Mm. And um, so I think we also have helped build a much flatter organization that is very effective, but is kind of novel to them. Um, they're definitely much more used to the management team sits in the glass box and tells them what to do. And we've done a really good job of kind of translating what is much more common in the U S or in the Western countries of a flatter structure. Um, and I think benefited a huge benefited tremendously from it. That's cool. Where are you selling your products? Are you selling just in the U S are you selling globally? 98% U S. So, um, we do do some international, but it is pretty limited and it's kind of one off as people can buy from the site. And is it just because there's no, there's no need to try to drive out into those markets yet when you haven't even hit saturation in the U S yet? It pretty much. It is a sequencing sequencing and focus. I think we still have plenty of opportunity here. It is, we're very excited about our international prospects um, because particularly you don't write words in the cards, right? So inter internationalization should be more straightforward from yeah, us. Yeah. Um, but it's just a matter of when and how. Right. Okay, got it. All right. So the company starts five years ago. You kind of get funding, a little bit of initial funding from Shark Tank. You get up and running. Um, what was the first big bump in the road? Were there any kind of the oh shit moments or lessons from the edge? I think there have been many. Exactly. As with any business, there have been many, many. I think um, one of the key challenges we've had all throughout the business is how do you know if a test is working or not? Um, as you're looking for new scale, you're constantly testing new things. And when it works, it's like, is that a false positive? And when it doesn't work, you're like, is that a false negative? Um, in the very beginning, even when we're on Shark Tank, most of our story was around expanding our retail kiosk model. And mm. so we looked Shark in the face, 
looked at Kevin O'Leary and we're like, we're expanding retail. This is our plan. You know, we have a few locations in Boston that are working really well. We're really excited about it. Um, then literally within a few months, we opened a handful more locations. They did not work as well as what they were working in Boston. And we're like, oh no, <laughs> that's not what's supposed to happen. Um, and of course, in hindsight, you're like, well, obviously they're not, they weren't the same caliber of location. We tried to move too fast. The build out wasn't quite the same. Um, which ironically is exactly the feedback Barbara gave to us as she went out. She's like, these guys are trying to move too fast. Um, and I think it was true. In the beginning, we were much more, you know, you're just trying to find wherever you can go next. And so we um, moved a little bit too quickly. And I think now sometimes we actually fall into a trap of maybe moving a little bit too slowly um, because we want such a strong signal that um, you don't kind of jump into it. I think it's a really good lesson though, about like testing for the false positive or the false negative, because I think especially entrepreneurs much more than maybe their management teams, but entrepreneurs tend to follow that quick, you know, the, the big shiny object, right? It's like they, they go from, um, you know, execution and they plan later their quick starts. So is there a difference between you and Wambi in terms of the CEO and COO in terms of your behavioral traits there? Do, are one of you more entrepreneur or is the other one more, integrator or do you just force yourselves into those boxes a little bit? No, I think, I think our innate like characters are well suited for our roles. Um, I think Wambi really is a vision, a passionate visionary. Um, he wants to take on the world and he's, he's a very strong like pattern matcher and he kind of sees what are the patterns that we should be following or where should we we'd be going. And I am much more of a pragmatist um, I am like, what can we do tomorrow to move us along that path? Um, and so it's a really good compliment because without him, I think I wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily drive as hard or as fast. Um, but with him or without me, it would, we would have a hard time kind of charting the path of how are we going to actually get there? Mm, got it. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, all right. So you said earlier about uh, th that something around kind of, learning that you're wrong often and then learning from that and learning that, that Wambi's wrong often, kind of both of you learning that you've been wrong as often as you've been right and, and learning from that. What have you learned that shows you that you need to listen more? And how do you communicate to each other that I'm not arguing with you, I just need to say my bit? Like, how do you, how do you learn to communicate that way? I think, um, so key is what you said, just realizing that you know less than you think you do. Um, and then I think it is being much more strategic and considered and holding yourself to a high bar in terms of justifying your approach and your reasoning. I think that is actually one of the key things that Wami and I are much better at now than we used to be. And that as I look at the leaders who are really effective in our organization, they are the people who can really rationalize why they view something. And mm -hmm. it both makes them effective in driving towards the correct answer. Um, and it makes them effective in teaching other people why X, Y, and Z is the correct answer. Um, so I think, yeah, like being very thoughtful and considered is, is really valuable. Cool. Um, we're under a lot of pressure right now to buy American, produce in America, you know, to, um, you know, certainly China is kind of on the, they're putting a lot of pressure to, to not be buying out of China. So you're out of, out of um, Vietnam, which is easier. 
Are you, have you looked at the U.S. as a market to manufacturing? Have you looked at Mexico as a market to, to manufacturing? Or has Vietnam just got so many strategic advantages that it, it's always going to be there? And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not biased against it at all. No, no, all good. No, it's a good question. It's a question that we get as well. Um, I think from a economic and business model, we have looked at other locations and over the kind of future of the business, I think there will be a time when we open in other locations. Um, right now we found the art in Vietnam and we've really like fostered and built that community mm. in Vietnam. Um, and we have, there's now so much momentum and so much there and we've built such an amazing team and a great pe group of people that we're not in a hurry to change anything up. Um, but I think of course, as the business evolves and as you think about diversification across all kinds of risks, um, we do think about where else we could go and how else we would do it. But for us, I mean, it's just, we, we feel so connected with those, the people, um, and the place that it's really a no brainer to continue to, to develop that there. And our, our customers have appreciated that as well. That's cool. What do you think you pulled out of your MBA program that you use today? Were there any really solid skills or um, strategies that you've pulled out of the MBA at Harvard? <laughs> That's very funny. Um, I think the biggest things are around communication and problem solving and are around making as good of decision as you can make on not as much information as you ever would really want. Um, and particularly at Harvard, the Harvard MBA program um, does challenge you to do that a lot in their case method, kind of in their classroom. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that is the number one thing that I pull, took away from there, um, even more so than kind of tactical frameworks. Um, okay. And I do think it's been impactful. For sure. It certainly doesn't, doesn't hurt on the pedigree side of things as well. The, um, there was at one point, I think it was 2004, and for a few years, 1-800-GOT-JUNK was one of the case studies at the uh, MBA program at Harvard. Are we still there? Do you know? I don't know that I did your case. Yeah. Um, I have to check. Okay. Cool. It was, uh, it was interesting. We had this vision wall inside of our office, and I wrote one of my visions was to be a Harvard Business School case study, and I put it up on the wall. And about a year later, this guy was walking through and he goes, hey, I'm from Boston, blah, blah, blah. And are you guys serious about this is one of the 50 things up on the wall that you really want to do? And we're like, yeah, we don't know how to do it, but it's one of the things we want to do. He goes, I know the guy who, who approves all the case studies. So he introduced us and we did our initial call with him. He goes, I love this. We did a couple months worth of sending off information and there we were. We all of a sudden became a Harvard business. And I, Brian and I, neither of us could even spell Harvard, let alone get accepted. There. So it was <laughs> I'm, cool. sure you could, I'm sure you could do that. That's awesome. Congrats. Yeah, it was cool. All right. Final question. If you were to um, give yourself some advice when you were kind of the 21-year-old John starting out in business, you know, we never listened to our parents. But if we could have listened to ourselves at 21, what's something that you wish you'd known then that now you know to be true? I think the... I would say that I wish I appreciated that I actually knew much less than I did know. Um, and that, but I had the capability to learn most things. Mm. So to actually trust my kind of yearning for information and wanting to learn more than kind of what I actually thought that I knew. That's interesting. Yeah, we're always learning, right? Ray Kroc at McDonald's said, when you're green, you're growing. When you're ripe, you're rotting. I don't think we're ever going to be finished <laughs> growing. John Weiss, co-founder and COO at Love Pop Cards. Thanks for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. I really appreciate it.
enjoyed it. Thank you so much. That was great, man. Thank you. Sweet. No- You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.